Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Three guests in two segments today. In seconds, we'll hear from the anthropologist and organizer Kate Doyle-Griffiths about teacher strikes and the crisis of social reproduction. And at the bottom of the hour, the political scientist Theo Rio-Francos and journalist Daniel Denver review a book that's a morbid symptom of the derangements of contemporary liberalism. First, teachers and social reproduction. The spreading wave of teachers' uprisings, starting in West Virginia and moving westward to Oklahoma, Arizona, and other so-called red states, has gotten lots of attention. But how they fit into a broad crisis of social reproduction, the institutions and practices that produce and sustain us as human beings outside market relations, has gotten less attention. Here's Kate Doyle Griffiths, an anthropologist, an organizer with the International Women's Strike, and a member of the Red Bloom Collective, who did a lot of on-the-ground reporting in West Virginia during the strike, to put it all in context. Kate Doyle Griffiths. Certainly lots of people have talked about uh, the West Virginia teacher strike. Only a few of them have been there. You've been there. <laughs> I'm very curious how much organizing went on uh, in the run-up to the strike or how much it was spontaneous. What's your analysis of the combination of those things? I think it's always a mistake to imagine these things as being spontaneous. When it looks spontaneous, that usually means there's some organizing that you just didn't see or didn't have access to. Um, but what I think was so interesting about the West Virginia strike was that the kind of organizing that took place before the strike happened, a lot of it really did start in this mega Facebook group that had almost all of the teachers who ended up going on strike as members, as well as a bunch of other public sector workers. And so people really moved from having debates and discussion on Facebook into doing one-on-one -on -one meetings with other teachers in their schools and into organizing meetings at school, as well as into smaller uh, district-wide Facebook groups, school-wide Facebook groups, and even some Facebook live chats. So to me, it was the, the tools of the strike, I think, made it seem more spontaneous than maybe it really was, but um, also sort of an interesting model that we've seen spread to other states since then. What was the catalyst? What got the thing going? Um, well, that was something I didn't know until I, I arrived in West Virginia, and I showed up at the state house on the first day of the Wildcat. And, you know, you have to go through a metal detector to be able to enter the state house, as you do in a lot of these places. Um, and so we're all kind of waiting in line, um, making jokes here and there. And people are joking about uh, their Fitbit setting off the metal detectors. And it was such a weird – and everybody laughed in the line, you know, like up and down. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a strange that's a strange joke, and I don't get it. So um, it's an old anthropology trick. That's my training um, to, you know, have somebody explain to you a joke, and you'll learn a lot about what the situation is. And it turns out that the joke was – that this healthcare plan that people were paying so much for between $400 and $800 a month also included a, a, a quote-unquote voluntary uh, preventative care program called Go365 that asked people to wear a Fitbit and then upload all of their steps, all of their daily activity, apparently including their sexual activity, to this third-party private company, along with other kinds of private information like their bust measurements, their hip-to-waist ratio, and that sort of thing. And people found that to be just a real humiliation. And Yeah, that's where austerity meets the surveillance state. It's really ugly. Yeah. And I think, you know, because they're teachers, too, one of the things that I thought was interesting that somebody pointed out to me was that we know from getting a new voluntary curriculum or a new voluntary uh discipline program for our students that these things never stay voluntary, right? They become mandatory quite quickly, um, even if they weren't already sort of coercive in, in the way that they're presented as financial benefits to you. Um, and so people just assumed, of course, eventually this is going to be a requirement. And so that was actually the thing that sparked the strike, which surprised me when I found out about it. Yeah. So there's uh, more of a copay coming from uh, for, for their health insurance. That was what really set them off. Yeah, and it kept going up and up and up. And the interesting thing about that, um, when I sort of dug into it, was that the PEIA, the Public Employees Insurance uh, Program there, had, had been free until 1989. The copays had basically been going up and things had been defunded since then. And that was actually the thing that sparked the last statewide teacher strike in West Virginia in 1990 was the initial introduction of costs for the healthcare, the healthcare plan. So this is something I've been going on for really quite a long time, almost 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 30 years. Now, a number of analysts have uh, traced the origin of this strike to the, the militancy long ago in the, the coal fields. Uh, but that, that 90s teacher strike was also very important, right? What was the historical background for all this? A couple of things I thought were important about it. One is that a lot of people who participated in this strike, right, had actually, you know, are now 
uh, elder statesmen, teachers who've been working for 30 years, and they had participated in the last strike. In fact, one of the things that I encountered was somebody who had gone on strike in her first week of work as a substitute in 1990, who now had brought a substitute teacher in her first week of work out to this picket this this picket and this strike. And to me, that was such a, a cool kind of continuity and showed me the importance sometimes of people having like their own lived experience of, of uh, the labor movement and of militant labor action to draw on. And there were specific lessons from that strike that I heard a lot of people mention, one of which being that uh, teachers and, so, and school support staff are much stronger when they're actually both on strike and when they're in solidarity together. And I think that was one of the, that lesson really showed in this strike and in the way that people stuck it out um, and weren't going to be divided between those two, that kind of sectoral division. Yeah, there's often a tension between the people who see themselves as professionals and you know the people below them in this, uh, the social ladder, uh, but there is solidarity across that uh, barrier in this case. Yeah, it seems like there's been a long, you know, and this isn't just West Virginia, but it seems like there's been a long, a long sort of history of tension along those lines. Part of it is just that our schools are so underfunded and people get paid so little that I think, you know, you see this in all kinds of workplaces that somebody making twenty five or twenty eight thousand dollars a year feels a lot of resentment towards somebody who's making thirty five or thirty six thousand dollars a year because neither of those things are really enough to live on or survive on. But in this case, you know, I mostly heard the exact opposite. I heard teachers telling me that their uh, their classroom support uh, staff were like the most important people in making their jobs possible, especially teachers who are working with students with disabilities. Um, and of course, just in terms of the strike, the school support staff were the, were the sort of what I was calling the, the rock drillers of the strike because they were strategically the people who could shut down a school. If, you, if you, there's one bus that takes kids to your school and they don't show up, then there's no school, right? Um, and the same thing is true if there's one cook who works at your school, which is a tr- true of a number of these schools. And much has been made, of course, that uh, West Virginia has gone Republican in recent years, voted for Trump. Uh, how did that uh, that national political uh, cloud uh, fit into this story? I think that it's, it's really kind of a misdirection, or it's not, or at least it's not the whole story. If you look at West Virginia, but not just West Virginia, a lot of these so-called red states where uh, teachers are going on strike you know, they have a long history of, they, they have varying degrees of history of being quote, quote unquote red states at the national level. Um, and of course, that's that's a pretty recent development for West Virginia. You know, it had long been a swing state and it had only gone in the 80s, I think, uh, for a Republican president once. Um, but many of these states have had, had for a much longer period of time, solid democratic leadership at the level of the state. And in, in all of the cases that I've looked into so far, it was in that in that situation where the where Democrats controlled both sides of the state house and often the governorship as well that uh, school austerity was actually implemented, and so that's what really set the stage for these this wave of strikes. And when it's looked at that way, I think you know you can see that both the that sort of period of the '90s Democratic parties turned to right wing austerity and sort of Clinton, Clintonian um, third way politics. Um, is this just a bigger problem as as the Republicans? I think it's you know it's obvious that Republicans haven't solved this problem for people in places like West Virginia or Oklahoma or really provided much of an alternative. Um, but it makes sense to me when I look at it that way why so many teachers who are on strike would say would say things like this isn't a political strike or the strike isn't about politics um, because they didn't necessarily see either of the two parties as being uh, particularly pro-teacher or particularly interested in the interests of, of teachers and other workers in the state. It's funny how people's uh, colloquial understanding of politics is all about elections and the two parties. And any sense of the broader political is not part of the discourse. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's also another thing that we see that I think is really interesting is that um, there's kind of a, there's, you know, we have the strike wave that's happening uh, in, in states across the country, and we also have this wave of various kinds of, of assaults on the rights of reproductive rights and so forth and rights of, of women and other gender marginalized people. But in particular, right, we have this wave of abortion bans that are also sort of stalking the same kinds of states and the same kinds of places as these teacher strikes. And you don't have a lot of overlap in terms of that conversation. In fact, at least from the perspective of people who are advocating for the right to an abortion in West Virginia, because this, this was actually in West Virginia when I was there, the abortion ban was on the table at the state legislature at the same time as these 
question about uh, teacher funding and bills to fund teachers. And people really perceive them as being just two wholly different and separate categories of things, even though, of course, we know that 75 percent at minimum of of people who are teaching in the state are women. Um, And I would say it was even a higher percentage of that in terms of the people who are very active involved in the strike. So that was a that was a really notable thing to me. I'm speaking with Kate Doyle Griffiths, who's an anthropologist and an organizer with the International Women's Strike. I want to get back to the topic of uh, gender and all this in a moment, but sure. uh, just one more question about the the labor issues. Virginia is an open shop state. Uh, there are, I believe, three unions uh, around this uh, um, this event. Um, what were the relations of the strikers to the unions? Yeah, so that was an interesting thing too, and that was something that I asked a lot about. And of course, it's it's like you said, it's not just that it's an open shop state; it's also that these are public employees, and so there's no right to collectively bargain at all. Um, the unions are not functioning there as unions in that sense, or at least not legally so. Um, which means that they're kind of like you know operating as professional associations or advocacy groups, and people really, I think, uh, it, it, there's kind of a split. People really see them that way, and in a lot of cases saw. It has a positive thing that they had the um, the AFT and the the NEA there to uh, you know sort of provide a centralized or you know a kind of platform for teachers' concerns, but they really saw them as following the uh, teachers themselves. And so I heard that a lot of like it's good that they're sort of coming along behind us and able to put forward our our, our ideas after the fact. And I also heard some people say that it was good that they were. Uh, you know, they were good for fact-checking, that they were kind of like a fact-checking organization. Um, or, you know, that it was a positive thing to be a member of the union because they would might legally support you either in terms of workplace issues or in terms of the strike. But there was also conflict between teachers and the um, elected representatives of the union as well as um, the sort of broader uh, national structures of the union. Um, and we really saw that after that first deal was announced between Governor Governor Jim Justice, which is just one of those names that I think you know, you have to <laughs> you can't you can't ignore it. It's just so great. But anyway, you know they first announced this deal uh, for a five percent raise for just the teachers, and you know everybody said, "Oh, we won." And then you know you could quickly see teachers in these various teacher discussions saying, "I don't think we've won," and I'm don't think we're going back to work. So by the time I got down there, you know we were waiting to see about each district voting to go on strike. And it was kind of like watching one of these election maps, you know, on a, on a very exciting national election night, but it was just for the 55 counties of West Virginia. This was following, apparently, I wasn't there, but apparently when the deal was announced by the leaders of both of the teachers unions, those leaders were booed because people were so unhappy with the deal. And so I don't think it, it was a sort of consistent state of hostility, but what it was, was people really showing that um, teachers are the ones making the decision, not the not necessarily the union leadership or um, even elected representatives. And so um, as long as as long as they just do what teachers want, they're happy. But if not, it seems like they're willing to organize with or against them, basically. OK, now to the, the, some of the, the other issues related, uh, which we touched on a moment ago, uh, the, the, the strikes which are spreading from state to state, teachers, mostly women, some of the few successful uh, labor organizing uh, efforts uh, in recent years have been with nurses, also mostly women. What do we make of this, both the combination of those professions, teachers and nurses, plus the fact that they're mostly uh, female professions? What should we think about this? I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to think about and approach it, but it's not just a sort of um, one-off kind of, oh, in this particular case, this is where this is happening. Um, you know, there's a, a sociologist, uh, uh, Beverly Silver, whose work um, people might be interested in looking at. She's actually tracked this uh, sort of uh, over over decades and decades and shows that when kind of strike waves kick off, they tend to kick off in sectors like this and in, in healthcare and education. Um, and I like to think of those sectors as, as uh, sectors devoted to what I would call social reproductive work. So it's in this case, waged work, right? But where the job, where the main task is reproducing workers who are capable of work, right? Either because they're educated enough for the kinds of work that might be available to them or just by simply kind of reproducing people's bodies. And I, I think, you know, there's a lot of, you could give a lot of different kinds of reasons for that. But to me, and this is true both of uh, what I've seen in West Virginia, but also in my in some other research that I've done in South Africa looking at public sector strikes, that when you have people who work in 
um, what I would think of, like teaching and nursing as kind of social, I call it, I would think of them as socially productive choke points or social choke points, because these people are at an intersection, both of the challenges of reproducing their own families, right? The challenges of being able to find childcare for their kids, to take care of elderly parents, to pay for their own health care, right? As we saw in terms of this strike. And then on top of that, right, they have this window and this view into the sort of systematic, systemic nature of that crisis of social reproduction because their students are increasingly pressed and their students' families are increasingly pressed. And that becomes very visible in their work because their job, right, is to take care of students. So if you have students who are not eating, eating properly, if you have students whose parents are victims of this widespread opiate crisis, which is heavily impacting West Virginia when I was there, then you're going to see that in the course of your work as a teacher. It's going to become something that you realize very quickly is not just your family, um, but is actually widespread uh, among all the families of your students. Um, and then uh, thirdly, uh, I think people, uh, both in terms of their jobs and their, their families, tend to be, who are in those positions, tend to be uh, respected. They tend to be people that others look to for ideas and advice and organization. And so they're people who can quickly turn those kinds of socially productive uh, networks that they've organized either at work or at home into organizing networks that can produce a strike relatively quickly. So that's, the, that, that's some of the ways that I like to think about why this, why this tends to happen this way. It's interesting that the, uh, the elites have been trying to uh, slander teachers as overpaid and ineffective for a couple of decades now, but I don't think it's really stuck. Teachers still have a lot of respect among the broad population. Yeah, I think it really depends, right? And a lot of a lot of that rhetoric about public sector workers and about teachers can become highly racialized, and I think that's when you see it become very effective because, of course, there's another aspect to this, right, which is that public sector unions also tend to be the places where not just women but women of color and, and even queer people are most represented in uh, the organized aspect of the workforce. So sometimes those things can get deployed successfully against teachers. But in general, right, people know their kids' teachers. They're grateful that they're happy that, they're, that their kids' teachers are looking out for them. And most people, especially under the kinds of conditions and pay and so forth that people have been dealing with for, like you said, a number of decades, are not teaching to get rich, right? They're not teaching because they're lazy, because the job involves working for, you know, eight, 10 hours a day for a for a very small paycheck. I mean, I think some of you guys have seen the paycheck stubs that Oklahoma teachers were posting on social media and the take-home pay for, for a veteran teacher that I, I saw that really actually, even though I know all this stuff, it just completely shocked me. It was like a thousand, just a little over a thousand dollars a month, which is just honestly totally insane uh, and hard to imagine how you could, how you can justify that. So it just does, I think it sticks because it doesn't stick because it's obviously not true. And uh, were the teachers aware of this kind of analysis that you're, you're making, the, the, the crisis of social reproduction? Is there some kind of you know, developing understanding of how their fight fits into a larger political struggle? Yes. I mean, I certainly think in terms of the things I just said about teachers being important in the lives of their students and having a window onto that, that I think is very common sense and something most teachers and nurses completely understand and something you see emerge in these kind of strikes whenever and wherever they happen, that people argue that these, you know, that their working conditions are the learning conditions of their students, the, the hospital conditions for their patients, because the connection between those two things is very obvious in the work. That said, I don't think that people, you know, the way in which people, when I first got to West Virginia, did not really see themselves as part of something larger was, I think, they didn't have a sense that this, that this, the degree and the scale of the problem was something that went beyond West Virginia. I think that kind of consciousness was something that developed over the course of the strike, and once people started seeing support coming from elsewhere and strikes taking off in other places. And by the end of the strike, it was very clear that this was this is a, a bigger problem that's bigger than West Virginia. So does this have legs, or will it uh, be another one of these things that dies out? I think it really depends on, really depends on what happens in each of these states. I mean, a strike, is, a strike and momentum is a fragile thing, right? Uh, it depends on how people are able to build the strike and what kinds of victories we can see coming out of each of these states. And, and, it, and it can be very fragile. There's a, even before the strike in Oklahoma, teachers had already won a significant, uh, uh, not just pay increase for themselves and other uh, and support staff, but also some funding to go into the overall budget for the school system. And now it looks like that teachers have gone back to work. It looks like the legislature might uh, cut, might eliminate the funding for the, for that entire bill. So it really depends on if, if that if something like that happens and teachers don't go back out, 
well, I think that could have a that could have a chilling effect on the strike wave building. But if teachers keep going on strike and they keep winning, that's an example that's going to encourage other teachers in other states to go ahead and do what they have to do. That was Kate Doyle Griffiths, an anthropologist and an organizer with the International Women's Strike and a member of the Red Bloom Collective. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of the first variation from Robert Schumann's variations on an original theme performed by Andras Schiff. Next, the parlous state of contemporary liberalism, whatever that is. I spent several years on an email discussion list for liberal pundits. It was never a good fit. I was brought in for ideological diversity, and I signed off during the 2016 election campaign. During my tenure on the list, I was struck by how ideologically empty their liberalism was. I repeatedly asked them precisely what they stood for, and their answers were all rather vague. They didn't like Republicans, but a lot of them didn't like Sanders and those to his left either. I suspect that all they can talk about these days is Robert Mueller and Vladimir Putin. They're probably divided in the Comey question. Yasha Monk has a new book out, The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It, from Harvard University Press. Blurred by no less than Francis, The End of History, Fukuyama, the book has been embraced by liberal elites as a how-to guide to maintain their power and wealth, which is under threat from dangerous populists. Monk ticks all the boxes for a member of the liberal elite, lecturer at Harvard, frequent speaker at such intellectually electrifying events as the Aspen Ideas Festival and the Milken Global Conference, not to mention TEDx talks. But what does he stand for? In a review of the book published on the N Plus One magazine website, Theo Rio Francos and Daniel Denver explore just that question, and their findings are not inspiring. An uneasiness about popular rule, a belief that democracy has to be a bit of a con job to work, and a complete lack of self-criticism. Theo Rio Francos is a professor of political science at Providence College, and Daniel Denver is a writer-in-residence at the Fair Punishment Project and host of The Dig podcast. Theo Rio Francos and Daniel Denver. I've had a hard time actually figuring out what liberalism means these days. Uh, it seems less clear what it means than it did, you know, in the, its heyday in the 50s and 60s into the 70s. You've got a book that you read that uh, attempts to uh, define or redefine liberalism from our time. Tell us about the book. So the book is is an attempt to sort of rescue liberal democracy from uh, a moment in which the two parts of this political regime have come into mutual um, antagonism and crisis. So it's kind of one of these ongoing attempts that I've seen over the past couple of years that I think we've all kind of observed over the past couple of years in which political and economic elites are kind of grasping at something to suture this system back together that is under attack from the right, from the left, and from economic crises and other crises, um, geopolitical and otherwise. Yeah, one of their all-purpose cuss words is populism, which seems to be their enemy. Right, right. And, and of course, the way that populism is figured is always as a kind of blanket threat. And it's kind of negatively defined by like something that's just other than the nice liberal democracy than we want. So both leftist versions, you know, Corbyn or Sanders or Hugo Chavez and right wing versions all are equated as equally anti-systemic threats to the liberal order um, that needs to be preserved or revitalized. But tellingly, he doesn't mention Bernie Sanders once he's able to talk about manages to talk about uh, Venezuela a few times, where obviously Nicolas Maduro has been a disaster. But if he mentions Sanders by name, he might feel compelled to 
explain precisely why Sanders's proposals are so terrible and dangerous, which I think he would struggle to do because he's only able to deal with the left vis-a-vis occasional caricature. He being Yasha Monk, right? Yes. Okay. And who is Yasha Monk? Yasha Monk wears many hats. He is a lecturer at Harvard University. He is a um, the executive director of the Tony Blair Institute for Revitalizing the Center. <laughs> no, I think it, I, I, no, it, it's the it's the Tony Blair Institute's uh, Revitalizing the Center team is what he's in charge of. Holy God! The, Christopher Hitchens wrote a mock op-ed a couple of decades ago in which he quoted something called the Center for the Study of the Center, and this is pretty much what that is. Right. So yeah, populism is one of the main ways that the the kind of boogeyman gets figured. But um, but as I was saying, and as you were kind of starting to say, it, it's not it's not always clear what what is being defended. It just there's a sense that the system is under threat and that all the threats are equally bad and equivalent to one another. Um, but what exactly is being defended or being revitalized or resuscitated is less clear. And I think that that your question about what the term liberalism even means is a very good one, because throughout the book, and this is symptomatic of of these types of texts, whether op-ed pieces or, or the sort of whole like kind of um, I like to call it a self-help genre for for liberal elites kind of suffering from from break mental breakdown and political breakdown. Um, this whole genre uses liberalism in a very expansive way. So it comes to encompass everything that they like about the world and that they think is under attack from populace of various sorts. And that can expand from liberalism being equated to democracy, which is not a good equation, and they have distinct intertwined yet distinct histories, um, often antagonistic histories, all the way to liberalism being equated with the entire political and economic order, right? So it, it takes on a very vacuous category, but what's clear is that there is something about the status quo um, of political decision making that elites feel to be under attack um, and that they feel like they are kind of losing control of. And so tellingly, when he's defining when he's defending liberalism, he does have trouble defining it. And so, for example, in touting, you know, what he describes as liberal institutions, i.e. ones that aren't directly subject to democratic control, like the Supreme Court, he gets a lot of the history profoundly wrong. He says, for example, that it was the unelected Supreme Court that ended segregation and, you know, not anyone subject to to popular control. And ostensibly, he's referring to like Brown v. Board. But if he knew anything about American history, which he quite clearly doesn't, he would know that it was the Civil Rights Act that ultimately made the promise of Brown of desegregating school actually put some teeth in it. And he doesn't mention the Civil Rights Act of 64 and 65 or the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which were all the clear result of in large part of popular mobilization of civil rights activists putting their bodies on the line in the South. And in the case of the Fair Housing Act, urban uprisings all over this country. But um, most of his uh, explanations of American history are, are just like empirically false. Liberals are terrified of the mob. So they love the Supreme Court, although it's mostly Supreme Court of their imagination because the current Supreme Court is anything but liberal by, by any stretch of the, the definition. What kind of attitude towards democracy uh, do you see in, in this monk and uh, the rest of his species? That's an excellent question. What's fascinating in the book is how little anything like the demos, um, the sort of collective subject of, of the ostensible collective subject of democracy, appears at all, except again in its negative and dangerous sort of figuration, right? So the demos appears when they're threatening liberalism or maybe when they're sort of no longer convinced by liberal elites' um, bad messaging strategies. But there's nothing like a sense of, of, of democratic participation, of social movements, um, of anything like a grassroots or the sense of struggle that actually has produced many of what we enjoy as democratic rights today. The only mention of something like protest um, in the U.S. context is in the last few pages of the conclusion where he refers to sort of grassroots opposition to Trump. But literally the entire book there's a complete absence of any reference even to something, you know, kind of within the liberal imagination, like the Women's March or something like that. There's there's really nothing there in terms of what substantive democracy might look like or why it's worth or important to save it. And insofar as he has a political project that 
in, involves the masses. It's his call for liberal elites to lead this this new what he describes as a as a new brand of of moderate nationalism that will somehow co-opt that space from the nativist Islamophobic far right. And then again, he gets like the history on on these matters like entirely wrong. He calls for more border security and for for the federal government to to target so-called criminal aliens for removal and that this will dampen much of the nativist appeal that the right holds. And he couldn't be more wrong. I mean, the last few decades, the Dem- much of the Democratic Party has been utterly complicit in building what's now about 650 miles of border wall. And all that did was move the Overton window to the right and further legitimate Trump's call for a wall across the entire border. And when it comes to, I mean, it was utterly bizarre that he said, why is it so objectionable? You know, liberals should embrace targeting criminal aliens for removal. That was precisely the centerpiece of Obama's immigration policy. And it did not lead to a dampening of the appeal of the nativist far right. Obviously, what it did was legitimate this notion that that there's a criminal immigrant threat in this country, which Donald Trump exploited uh, masterfully and was arguably the the central issue that catapulted him into the White House. Yeah, during the presidential campaign, I recall some Republican saying, well, Hillary voted for a 700-mile wall. Uh, Trump wants a 1,000-mile wall. For 300 miles, he's Hitler. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's a really I mean, this is uh, getting a little farther afield from the review, but I think it is a, we have to look for silver linings in the Trump presidency. And one of them is that the border wall, which was for years a unquestioned, sensible, bipartisan approach to securing our our, our border has now become the toxic icon of, of hate to to many that it always should have been but wasn't. That was the voice of Daniel Denver. I'm speaking with him and Theo Rio Francos, who co-wrote a piece in the N Plus One magazine website about the state of contemporary liberalism, as exemplified by Yasha Monk's new book, The People Versus Democracy. You quote in your review, uh, Monk, saying, the views of the people are tending illiberal and the preferences of the elites are turning indemocratic. And so as a result, liberalism and democracy are starting to clash. A rise of illiberal democracy or democracy without rights and undemocratic liberalism or rights without democracy. I'm trying hard to make some sense out of that. Um, does reading the whole book make that any more sensible? This category of of illiberal democracy has existed for um, a while now um, in the sort of pages of, of magazines like Foreign Affairs. The idea that, oh, no, the people might elect people that we don't like. And this is, you know, the, the term illiberal democracy is relatively new from the past few decades, but there's a much sort of older elite fear of actually empowering the masses to choose their leaders that this kind of taps into. Um, so as a concept, it's it's really not that new. What's a little bit different about Monk's approach is that he does, to give him credit, also put blame on elites for being undemocratic, right? So it's not just that the people are illiberal and elect sort of authoritarian rulers that are going to erode liberal institutions and freedoms, but also that liberal elites have become more and more undemocratic. And it is that that is like set liberalism and democracy in a mutual antagonism with one another. The problem is that his fix has nothing to do with sort of actually creating a vibrant democracy or actually tackling the issues of economic inequality that are eroding um, political equality. He makes some kind of gestures in that direction, but he's really not looking at the substantive sources of inequality or the erosion of democracy. Instead, he's saying elites act more like you care about what the people think, improve your messaging, speak to them about things that matter, like their fears of immigrants. And he is in favor of some modest redistribution. He is he is a uh, a liberal in the Clintonite mold. But there's no there's no sense of like at all the labor market structure or the structure of accumulation or anything that is producing inequality. It's all about marginal fixes. Um, But even more important than like the marginality and incrementalism is the fact that he thinks that some enlightened elites are just going to fix the whole system. Right. There is nothing about social movements or grassroots participation or labor struggles or labor strikes or the black freedom movement or anything like that. It is all about how can elites tinker with policies and also modify their messaging 
And that's where it gets kind of nefarious because a lot of the modifying of messaging has to do with his suggestion that liberal elites kind of co-opt and redeploy right-wing tropes like national security, like the idea of a unified nation, like the idea of the immigrant threat, and sort of make them a little less awful and use them to kind of sell um, liberal elites' political campaigns. As if that isn't precisely the strategy that has gotten us into the mess that we're in today. Well, it's funny, like liberals are always diluting something or other that's more powerful. They're, you know, diluting socialism into some modest redistribution of social democracy and, you know, in the, in the golden age, or they're uh, diluting right wing philosophy into something that's a little more uh, appropriate to uh, civilized company. But you know, it, it seems like they don't have a whole lot of ideas of their own. Yeah, I, I think, and I think Munch is an exemplar of this uh, exhaustion of any sort of serious ideas from the liberal center. Thus, as he writes, rhetoric matters. And that's really the primary argument of his book. Liberal centrist elites need to retool their their messaging because it's like w- w- the closest thing to an indictment of Hillary Clinton, you know, had great ideas. She would have done great things. I think he says for like Alzheimer's research, that's the like, one of the few examples he chooses. Populists benefit from having these simplistic narratives of a good and a bad and an us and a them. What liberal elites problem is, is that they understand that the world is complicated and the problems are complicated and thus have complex solutions. And the problem is, their problem is that the people have an a difficult time understanding that. There are a lot of things in politics that are very complicated. You know, actually coming up with uh, specific policies to accomplish certain goals is very complicated, but principles are not complicated. You can run a campaign on, on principles the way Sanders did, pretty simple stuff, uh, and uh, generate a lot of popular appeal and uh, you know, leave the details to be worked out a little later. But they, these guys always seem to get bogged down in um, these detailed agendas and position papers that can't speak to anyone's passions or ideals at all. Yeah, and this is uh, relates, I think, to the sort of dodge that underpins his call for a new liberal nationalism. Is he sets up this this false choice between either embracing nationalism, as reluctant as he is to do so, because he knows nationalism is is bad, but he thinks it's necessary, either doing that or embracing what he calls more narrow forms of collective identity, like race or religion. He never considers, though, that class might be a more progressive, less prone to driving, uh, you know, global imperial warfare and deporting thousands of immigrants way of, of, of organizing collective identity. Um, he can't consider class because uh, then he wouldn't just be able to caricature the options as embracing nationalism or uh, talking about cultural appropriation all the time. And uh, by the way, most of his discussion about race is not about things like mass incarceration or police brutality. It's basically like ridiculing people of color for overhyped campus controversies. And he goes so far as to say, and it's like really uh, unbelievably flat-footed, that ancient Egyptians who first wore dreadlocks, so perhaps it is black people who are engaging in the cultural appropriation. Oh, gotcha, man, huh? (laughs) Wow. What's setting people like Monk off is the rise of people like Trump, but also abroad through the fascist movements in, in, in Hungary, France, Italy. How does he explain their rise and their appeal? One way that he explains their rise is is by the failure of um, the sort of prior political establishments in those countries, including our own, to adequately engage and enchant um, the people. And I I just want to note, because we kind of uh, went over his whole analysis of democracy and liberalism a little quickly at the beginning, that he thinks democracy is not some kind of radical idea in which the people exercise collective sovereignty over the decisions that affect their lives. So you don't have, you know, much of the Rousseau notion or even the sort of Aristotle notion that like the people are political animals and we should, you know, participate in the decisions that affect us. For him, democracy is defined as a form of deception in which the people are tricked into thinking that they exercise sovereignty through these sort of ritualistic, you know, voting at the ballot box type of things. Um, Whereas uh, at the same time, elites maintain control over the most important decisions, right? And he thinks this was a good thing. 
And you think this was a good thing because it provides for order. And so to go back to your question about like, what is the ultimate goal here? It's something like stability, the the sort of what, why should we stabilize the system? Why is that a good in and of itself is never addressed, but stability is important. And in order for stability, you have to have hegemony in a sort of Gramscian sense, right? You need the masses of people to not just under the barrel of a gun submit to rule, but actually believe that the system works and works in their favor, right? And that belief, is now shredded and gone and under attack. Um, so that's the source of, of the resurgent right wing is the act, the fact that this myth of popular sovereignty is no longer working. People no longer believe in it, right? There's massive economic inequality. There's new forms of migration and diversity. Um, there's the explosion and proliferation of social media and sort of the destabilization of the expert opinion. Um, so for all of those uh, economic and social conditions or due to all of those so social and economic conditions, people no longer believe that they're actually uh, exercising power and they want the elites out and they want different people in. That That is his account in the broadest terms of why we get resurgent right-wing populism because the right wing, in a, for reasons he never explains, it is the right wing that has been more successful, according to him, at tapping in um, to that popular disenchantment and that sort of crack in, in hegemony than the left has been, though he never seriously engages with left efforts on that front. But he says that the right wing has been more successful. That was the voice of Theoria Francos. I'm speaking with her and Daniel Denver, who co-wrote a piece on the N Plus One magazine website about the state of contemporary liberalism, as exemplified by Yasha Monk's new book, The People Versus Democracy. There was a guy on Clinton's National Security Council who I, whose name escapes me, but he said uh, that democracy only works when there's fundamental agreement in the nature of property. Uh, <laughs> we're seeing that certain things have to be written out of democratic procedure for democracy to work. Right, right, exactly. Well, and, and tellingly, in his uh, definition of liberalism, he includes things like independent institutions, but never mentions protection of property rights as a key facet of liberalism, which I think, I mean, Thea would know much better than I, is a pretty, considered a pretty core aspect of liberal political philosophy by anyone who's studied it. Right. And not just a core aspect of, of what liberal subjectivity and sort of the liberal individual is founded on, um, but it's also a key reason for the antagonism between liberalism and democracy, right? Liberalism, one of its core features is the protection of private property, whereas democracy, at least in its utopian guise, is something like popular um, sovereignty. And those are going to come into conflict in an unequal society in which the masses do not own property, right? But he doesn't understand that property and that economic structure is key to the antagonism between between liberal rule um, um, and democratic sovereignty. And does he explore at all the role of center-left parties in Western Europe and North America, their move towards marketization and move away from anything vaguely redistributionist? Does he link any those moves to anything like the, the rise of the right? Not really. He faults things like the Citizens United decision for accelerating corporate control over politics and uh, also points out as a bad thing widening income inequality. But as far as I recall, he has no account at all of the Democratic Party's neoliberal turn in in recent decades and how that might be complicit in in uh, the mess we find ourselves in today. Nothing. And his prescription, writing uh, to uh, save us all, is something called inclusive nationalism, which is a strange idea because nationalism has to exclude people to be nationalism. <laughs> so um, what precisely does he mean by inclusive nationalism and how is it going to save us? Even though he has an entire chapter on this, I don't think he ever makes clear what it looks like beyond rhetoric. He cites Obama being kind of like, oh, America's all these people together and cites Macron um, saying something similar, but then doesn't go on to, to mention that Macron shortly after taking office launched a massive crackdown on asylum seekers, because that's like actually what liberal nationalism has has looked like over the years. I think the absence of any discussion of the war on terror and its bipartisan root, not only roots, but the bipartisan basis that it continues on is particularly striking because that is what American nationalism, including American liberal nationalism, has very much looked like. And in in his endeavor to explain the rise of Donald Trump to not account for the fact 
that the war on terror's permanence and slide from neoconservative utopianism into the grinding cynicism that these metastasizing set of conflicts have reached today, the role that that played in getting Trump elected, if he can't identify them, that, then, I mean, he has no clue why Trump is president. And so, so we're not just picking on this, what sounds like a very bad book, which I have to confess I haven't read and don't plan <laughs> to. Don't. This is a representative. I mean, this guy is taken seriously. Uh, he is rarely representative of a certain strand of liberal thought. You know, as you said, he teaches at Harvard. The, this book is published by Harvard University Press. So he comes with a you know fairly uh, uh, distinguished pedigree. And uh, these sorts of opinions are fairly widely held among uh, part of um, the, the, the pundit elite, right? This is not just some lone nut with, 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 with an argument. No, not at all. In fact, Dan, you had some other examples of recent um, pieces that, that kind of made a very, very similar point to this one. Yeah, I mean, he clearly echoes arguments about uh, made by Mark Lilla and Peter Beinart. Mark Lilla's argument being that so-called identity politics, by which he means overhyped campus controversies, have distracted liberals from embracing a a big collective we, which since Mark Lilla is not a, a leftist, it's not clear what that we is if it's not a class conscious we. And Peter Beinart recently pining for the, the days when Democrats were more stridently anti-immigrant, uh, unlike Moon, he is aware that Dem- Democrats used to be stridently anti-immigrant. There's definitely a a market for this I think, amongst the the liberal elites who have found themselves utterly discredited by by recent American politics. And I think in, in Munch's case, and not to, to pick on him too personally, his, his website and general career trajectory make it painfully clear that he's engaged in like a pretty thorough self-stylization as like the go-to wonk on the unruly masses. And it seems to be working for him pretty well. He's been favorably cited by David Brooks and David Remnick and, you know, God knows who else in recent weeks. The entire political spectrum between those two Davids. That's, yeah. <laughs> this makes me think of the largest topic of liberal derangement. Um, well, I don't know if it's a larger topic or related topic, but the topic of liberal derangement. These people have no way to understand what happened to them in November 2016. So it's all the fault of Vladimir Putin and Cambridge Analytica and Mark Zuckerberg, I guess. But they really have no capacity or or desire to look inward, do they? No, no, not at all. And and I think this this accounts for this what I find the the most crazy making about pieces like this, which you know, as we just discussed, are sort of symptomatic of a broader liberal freakout, um, which is that they. Not only are they not uh, self-reflective about their own role in generating the crisis, that might be too much to to expect of them, but not only are they not that, but they also tend to repeat ideas over and over again as if they were new and as if they had never been tried before. Um, so it's kind of underlying um, um, some of Dan's comments earlier about um, about the American history that Monk gets wrong. Um, Monk is suggesting that we do, we liberals, this annoying we that he writes in and, and sort of interpolates the reader into constantly, that we should create a new liberal nationalism, a new revitalized center, a new inclusive um, identity. These are the tropes of sort of Cold War American liberalism since forever. But the fact that he can present them as New speaks to me of the fact that there's just been a total, total breakdown combined with, of course, a total vacuousness and lack of creativity. And again, it's all premised on a totally unreliable account of American history, because if he got the history right, he would, one would think, have to come to different conclusions. And and so the way that I kind of um, um, thought of it while we were writing the piece, and there's some kind of similar line that ended up in there that, you know, is this idea that like every day liberals wake up, they read the news, they read about Cambridge Analytica, they read about Putin, they read about whoever, you know, whatever crazy person has last been elected in Europe. And they're like, oh, my God, we have to do something about this. OK, I have an idea. Let's convince the people that the prior way that we did things was great and that they should just believe in us again. 
And then the day goes on and it gets like less and less likely that that's going to work and more, you know, fascists get elected. And then they go to sleep and forget about that entire day and wake up and have the same freak out and come up with the same ideas. The ideas don't work again and they go to sleep. Except what's more pernicious about it is that they're bad ideas. Um, you know, CF, the kind of Hillary Clinton campaign is part and parcel of what also is generating the right wing reaction. Right. So it's not so innocent. It's not it's not just that they like have bad ideas that don't work. It's that their bad ideas are further fueling the fire of the right wing reaction. Those are Theo Riafrancos and Daniel Denver. Riafrancos is a professor of political science at Providence College and Denver writer in residence of the Fair Punishment Project and host of the Dig podcast. Their review of Yasha Monk's book appears in the N plus one magazine website. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of American Dream from the album of the same name by LCD Sound System. Till next week, bye. <laughs>